Father, You are gracious and merciful. And for us to gather this morning is a great and glorious gift that You have given to us. That You have allowed us the opportunity to gather. Unified in the cross of Christ. And we pray this morning, Father, that Jesus is exalted. We pray this morning... Father, that You help us to set our focus on Christ. And that in all things that we desire to make Him known, and that we desire to make Him look as glorious as He really is. And so we pray, Father, asking that You would set our affections on Christ. That You would tune our hearts to sing the glories of Christ And that as we look to Your Word, Father, that You would help us to see the great and glorious truth that Jesus is the Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Father, we pray this morning that as many of us come with broken and wounded spirits, Father, that You would heal us. Father, that we could be a people who may be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. That we would find great joy in the midst of every situation, no matter what may come. Not because we may like our circumstances, but because we know that You work things together for our good, that Christ may be known all the more that we may find greater joy and greater satisfaction at the end of fiery trials that may come for our steadfastness, for our patience, that we might persevere and stand to the end. So Father, we pray this morning that You would equip us to run the race, to fight the fight, that we one day will receive the imperishable wreath where we stand before You, O Lord, and You usher us in to the joy of our Master. So, Father, we pray that You would preside over our time remaining, that You would guide us in Your Word, that You would speak to us through Your Word, and that in all things that we would rejoice in knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. Father, grant us Your grace in this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you are a visitor this morning, we welcome you. We're so thankful to have you. My name is Nick. I'm one of the pastors here at Ephesus Church, and we preach through the Bible verse by verse, and we currently find ourselves in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we will be covering verses 10 through 17. The title of my sermon is The Cross and Christian Unity. The key words for our worshipers in training are division, unity, and follow. The cross and Christian unity. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, excuse me, chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. So let's read these verses together. 
I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptize anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. There's a man who visited a mental hospital. And he was shocked to see that when he got there, there were only three guards watching over a hundred dangerous inmates. And so he asked the guide that was with him, don't you fear that these people will overpower your guards and escape? And the, the guide said, no. Lunatics never unite. And so it is with the church. When we refuse to pursue unity, it is a sure sign that we have lost our minds. And yet so often this is exactly what we see in the church. Churches are predominantly occupied by individuals who have only known to handle disputes and conflict in their lives with attacks and lawsuits and slander and chaos And unless something happens to transform these situations, the church will simply manifest that very same chaos that exists in the rest of culture around us and in the homes of those who have never known peace or how to pursue it. And so what we oftentimes end up with is a gathering of people who all have different ideals and and different goals and a different focus with different preferences. And when those preferences are not fulfilled, disunity sets in. Because our default mode when we don't get our way is to attack. You know, this is is why cults are so successful. They know what they believe. And they make clear what they expect of their members. And they are no way ambiguous about what's going down. Here's what we believe. Here's what's going to happen. Any questions? No? Okay. Here's your Kool-Aid. Let's move on. But the church must exist as a visible contrast to this coercive, mind-altering, cultish life by, by living in a harmony that is beautiful and sustained by a shared submission to the truth of God's Word. Unfortunately, what happens in many families each day and each week gets transferred over into what happens in the church. 
And we may think, well, this is my family of faith, so we're going to go about things like we do in my household. And then we see squabbles and feuds take place instead of peace and love and unity. And that was certainly the case in Corinth. And if we've been around any local church for any length of time at all, we know exactly what this is like. You know, if you, if you look at statistics, if you look at surveys, the, least, the, the age where the least amount of people are in church is between 18 and 34 years old. And surveys have been done and asked the question, why is that? Why is it between that age group there are the least amount of people in the church? And predominantly those who have, never, uh, who have grown up in the church. Why is that? And if you were to ask, and the research is available from uh, the Barna Research Group, they will tell you because as they grew up, they saw nothing but a church split. They saw some issues with the money being handled corruptly in the church. They saw a pastor having an affair. They see hypocrisy. They hear one thing and then they see another in the lives of those who walk in the church. And so when they are no longer under the authority of their parents, they flee until one day God rescues them from their bondage. But you see, this was the very same thing that the church at Corinth was dealing with. Great disunity. And in our passage this morning, the Apostle Paul is very straightforward in his comments and very clear as to what they should be seeking to accomplish life together. What the problem is that currently exists. And then to lay a foundation for the church to move forward in unity with one another. In these verses, I see that Paul outlines four areas that we're going to address this morning. He begins by giving the church a guide to work, fun, to work from. And then he defines the problem within the church that he knew of. And as a result of those problems, he establishes a standard to go by. And then he ends this section by pointing them to what is the priority. So we'll see a guide, a problem, a standard, and a priority. Number one, the guide. Look again at verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. And we talked last week about verses 4 through 9 where Paul affirmed the truth that there are true believers in the church at Corinth. He affirms them in their faith and is now very gracious to them as he speaks to them, making an appeal in the name of Christ. And in simply appealing to them in this context, he is pointing out the incongruency of their division. How can this be that there would be division in the church if you are also in Christ? And so he gives them a guide, which is threefold. The first part is that you agree with one another. 
His appeal here is comprehensive. He says, all of you agree. And right here, all means all. There is no place for conscientious objection in the harmony of the church. I appeal to you to have agreement, all of you. And by agreement, he's saying literally that we would speak the same thing. Now, we we need to note the context of what Paul is writing. Because it has to do with central matters. It has to do with biblical truth and central Christian doctrines. So there's, there's not this thrust toward peripheral or secondary matters necessarily. But when it comes to biblical truth, when it comes to central Christian doctrines, there is to be a speaking out of one mouth of what we hold to. And we're talking about things like sin and the atonement and faith and the Trinity, the gospel. Yet in a quest to be agreeable with everyone, many have given up on this very basis for agreement. Saying that it's divisive and that the greater concern is making certain that we all just get along. But that is not what, the, what Paul is exhorting the church to do here. He is saying, speak the same thing in regards to the truth that we know, the truth that we hold to. The foundation of unity is agreement upon that which is essential. And so he exhorts the church to agree with one another on essential truths. Number two, he says, let there be no divisions among you. The Greek word for divisions is schisma. It's where we get our word schism or a tear or a crack or a dissension. And as we consider the fact that once enemies of God... Sinful, rebellious people with different opinions and different preferences and different desires make up the church. Our first thought may be to say, of course there's division. I need look for no further than my own household to know that these things are going to cause division. But the mature believer understands that diversity in the church is in relation to our differences in spiritual gifts, not our biblical doctrine. No local church can be healthy and genuine without doctrinal unity that is amplified by our thinking and our acting in harmony with one another. And so as it pertains to these truths, Paul says, let there be no divisions among you. And the third element of this guide is that the church be united in the same mind and the same judgment. In other words, if you have any regard at all to that dear and worthy name by which you are called, if you have any regard for the name of Jesus, be unanimous. Now again, Paul did not desire unity at the expense of truth. He himself stood against others in the church when the central truths of the gospel were at at stake, particularly in books like Galatians. What he is stating is that Christian unity requires like-mindedness. And the verses that follow reveal the beliefs 
which should have formed the center of agreement upon the Corinthians. And on the other hand, Paul did not mean that unity implied uniformity in all matters. As he points out in several places throughout the Scriptures, there is much room for disagreement. There is much room for diverse opinions over secondary issues in the Christian church. And there is a place for Christian liberty and freedom of which we must give each other room to operate within. In a way, Paul hints at the origin of those contentions amongst the church. He's pointing to the fact that pride lay at the bottom. And this made them all very, very divisive. Proverbs 13.10, I like how the King James Version says it, Only by pride cometh contention. So Paul begins by outlining the guide in which they are to follow toward Christian unity. Agree with one another. Have no divisions among yourselves and be united in mind and in judgment. The second thing that Paul goes to in this passage is the very problem with which he's addressing. Look again at verses 11 and 12. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos or I follow Cephas or I follow Christ. So people were taking their eyes off Jesus and focusing on personalities. The pupils or disciples of secular teachers in the first century uh, Hellenistic or Greek culture had to give their exclusive loyalty to their teacher. And traditionally, they engaged in quarrels with rival pupils over the merits of their mentors who were also, by tradition, jealous of each other. It is clear in how Paul is addressing the Corinthians who were converted and baptized through the ministry of Paul, Apollos, and Peter that they also perceived themselves in this secular way as exclusive followers of certain teachers, of certain preachers, and likewise engaged in quarrels over the merits of their Christian teachers. And Paul is declaring such loyalties as idolatrous. He wants them to all follow the Messiah, not His servants. Idolizing a certain teacher or a certain charismatic speaker or a certain person who does something in a certain way Idolizing someone who seeks the loyalty of what they say are their members has always been divisive. It has always been disastrous for the Christian community. And again, it boils down to pride. And it boils down to idolatry. So liable are the best things in the world to be corrupted. And even the gospel and its institutions, which are at perfect harmony with themselves and one another, 
are made to be the engines of variances, discord and contention. This is no reproach to our faith, but clear evidence of the corruption and the depravity of the human nature. Note how far pride will carry Christians in our opposition to one another. Even so far as to set Christ and His own apostles at odds with one another and make them rival competitors. And all these groups in the church were rallying around individuals. We see four different parties here. The first one is the Paul party. They're the good old days brigade. Paul was responsible for the conversion of, through his preaching, God converted many, many people in the Corinthian church. And I'll tell you, if someone comes to Christ under your ministry, there's almost nothing that you can do wrong in their eyes. But you don't have to be in a church too long to meet those who are part of this good old gang, the good old days brigade. And so Paul came, he planted the church, he preached the gospel, many were saved, and then he left to plant more. And so all were looking back and saying, remember Paul? Remember when Paul was here? Remember the ministry that Paul had? Remember the lives that were changed under Paul? And so they were clinging to Paul and holding to Paul. And the Paul party thought nothing of anyone else who came to preach the gospel. There was also the Apollos party. Apollos, history tells us, was bright and intelligent and forceful and dynamic in his preaching. And he had intellectualized the faith. And they saw Paul as just simply banging that same old drum. The cross, the cross, the cross. And so the Apollos party were the intellectually elite. They love a great sermon. They love to learn doctrine and to study hard. But they never apply anything they learn. And so the Apollos party was filled with those who were intellectually elitists. They knew the word. They knew the scriptures. They knew nothing of its application. And then there was the Peter party. Cephas, it was Peter. He was still walking in Jewish Christianity. If you remember, in the book of Acts, we see Paul and Peter had a little disagreement about this. Is he going to give up the Jewish background? And so those who were walking in this form of Jewish Christianity in Peter's party created their own form of legalism. They were once in the pit of the world. And now they're judging everybody who's not walking with them. They're always spiritually assessed by their outward activities. And it's attractive because at least, at least you can see something and know something quantitative outwardly. And so Peter's party were the fundamentalists. 
They were working to fulfill laws, many of which they made up on their own. And we even see here in verse 12 that there were those who said, I follow Christ, the Christ party. It sounds good on the surface. But these were the ones that said, we're not in any party. We've got no time for men or for leaders. We take our instruction directly from headquarters because we know what's going on. You ever meet these people? The Lord tells them everything. And it's based on pure subjectivism and individualism. And as you talk to them, you sense that they're more spiritual or they're more tuned in or they always have a better angle. They're always spiritually superior. And these groups always tend to go off and form their own gatherings because they feel like the average local church isn't good enough for them. These are the no-betters. The Christ party were those who said, we know better. And so out of these four parties, I think we see two forms of pride in the church when it comes to Christian leadership. One wants to ride the coattails of a leader to a kind of vicarious glory. And the other is a sort of anti-authoritarian, suspicious, skeptical, often cynical attitude that wants to make everyone that is not part of the herd feel less spiritual or less part of what Christ is doing with His church. Both of these attitudes of pride destroy the church. And so by this, Paul has defined the problem that existed within the Corinthian church. Third, we see that he provides a standard. Look at verse 13. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. So here Paul begins with three rhetorical questions. The first one, is Christ divided? Has Christ been dismembered and distributed? Can you have a little bit of Jesus here and a little more over there? Jesus is the source of integration. He is the unifying principle. He unifies husbands and wives and children and their parents and church members to one another and black and white and male and female and Jew and Greek. And the kinds of divisions in the Corinthian church could be justified only if Christ's own resurrected body had been dismembered. Elsewhere, Paul describes the church as the body of Christ, the community of those joined to Him and to one another by faith. If Christ had been dismembered after His resurrection, the divisions within the church might have theoretically been acceptable. But since Christ remained whole, 
the church needed to do so as well. We are the body of Christ. That's what he tells us in 1 Corinthians 12, 12. And if we try to puff ourselves up over the other members of the body, it would be a complete and total contradiction of Christ. The body is one. The fingers of the right hand would be foolish to boast over the fingers of the left hand because their leader is the right wrist and not the left. When a believer has Christ... That believer has all of Christ. No one needs to feel inferior. No one should feel superior if Christ is really your greatest treasure. Christ is not divided. If you have Christ, you have all of Christ. And to have all of Christ is to have everything you need to be joy-filled forever and ever. So is Christ divided? No. Christ is not divided. And so he asks, was Paul crucified for you? This is vitally important. Jesus is the only one who unites his church. Jesus is the reason for our gathering. And is the basis for all our unity. Jesus is the ultimately significant person. The presence of Jesus makes our gathering. Jesus is altogether the lovely one. Jesus is the fairest of 10,000. Jesus is the ruler. Jesus is the sovereign. Jesus is the head. Jesus is the power, the guide, the testimony, the example, the reality. Jesus is what makes the church the church. Therefore, when a church loses their focus on Jesus, it loses everything. And so he says, think it out. Think about this. Was Paul crucified for you? No, Jesus was crucified for you. And by this question, he made it clear that to identify oneself as a follower of Paul was to insult the saving work of Christ. Paul was the servant. He was the apostle of Corinth, but he was not their savior. And Paul is doing something very tactful here. He is zeroing in on this splinter group that made him their hero. If he went after Apollos' party first, he would have played right into the hands of the Paul group. So he ties right, he, he, he goes right up to bat to destroy himself as a grounds for boasting. I was not crucified for you. Christ was and Christ alone. This truth should have two main effects on us. One is that when it comes to boasting about someone, let that someone be the Lord and not a mere man. Verse 31 says, Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. 
compared to what Christ has done in dying for us, the distinctives of our different teachers are as nothing. To elevate a human teacher to the point where his allegiance shatters the body of Christ means that we have lost sight of the infinite and overwhelming worth of a crucified Savior. And the other effect that this truth should have on us is to remind us that our sin is so great that we needed to be saved by nothing less than the horrid execution of the Son of God. And so did our beloved teachers. And to boast in a man, to puff up him, and to puff ourselves up on his coattails, means that we have forgotten the dreadful condition we are all in without a crucified Savior. The cross breaks the back of all of our boasting. And so the cross undermines the deepest basis of disunity that lays a new foundation for unity. Paul is pretty straightforward here. He addresses these very same divisions again in chapter 3. And he points out in chapter 3 that disunity is a sign of childhood. It's childish. Jealousy, quarreling, these are immature. These are worldly things. Isn't this what we expect in a political party or a social club or in our businesses? This is normal stuff in the world. Let it not be so in the church. Paul and Apollos and Peter were, Paul points out in chapter 3, nothing more than servants. Here's Paul's point in all of this. As soon as a person begins to put their sole allegiance in one person, because they like their personality, they like their style, they like the way they preach, they like the way their voice sounds, they like the way they dress, whatever it is. As soon as a person begins to do a comparing game amongst men and put their allegiance in one over the other, they inevitably begin to take their eyes off Christ. And when we remove our eyes off Christ it is guaranteed that this fraying and fracturing is going to take place in the church. Jesus is the greatest unifier. And the cross is the place of great reconciliation. Can you imagine for one moment what great unity the church would experience if everyone's eyes were firmly affixed on Jesus? Thirdly, he asks, were you baptized in the name of Paul? The significance of this question in Paul's day has to do with what exactly was going on in baptism. Namely, that one, when one was baptized in the name of another, they were actually signing over their rights in their life to that individual. So Paul asked, did you sign yourself over to me? No. And when we clear out all the personalities, when all the earth, earthly relationships are cleared away, we recognize that we've been signed over not to a man like us, but to Christ. 
You aren't disciples of Paul or Apollos or Cephas. You're disciples of Jesus. But why baptism? Why does Paul mention baptism? He's able to use it as an illustration because it's all inclusive. In other words, he wasn't asking the question, were you baptized in the name of Paul? And their response being, no, I wasn't baptized at all. No, the reason he asked the question is because it is presupposing that they were all baptized in the first place. So the significance of what is going on is that he is able to assume baptism, thus giving him an illustration to work from. And at this point, it seems as though the Corinthians were baptizing beyond its intended purpose. So Paul emphasizes the greater importance of proclamation. But he also recognizes that baptism is not simply an empty ritual, but rather an outward sign of complete and total dedication of one's life to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why he asks, were you baptized in the name of Paul? Because if you were, you are totally dedicated to Paul and you have no room for Christ. Therefore, the principle is that our unity is in Jesus. In the wholeness of Jesus, Christ is not divided. In the cross of Jesus, He was crucified for you. And in the Lordship of Jesus, you were baptized in His name. This is where unity is to be found in Christ. This is why you cannot create unity based on theological mergers or denominational affiliations. You cannot create unity by superimposing what exists on the outside in hopes that it will translate into what is happening on the inside. The way the family goes is a result of parenting, right? Everyone in that family understands that what makes them who they are and how they operate together is the fact that they are all united as one under the headship of one father. And that is exactly what being a Christian in community is all about. Being united in Christ under the headship of the Father. This is why our faith This is why our life in Christ begins with birth. Paul is addressing people who are not qualified as a result of being religious. But they have discovered the nature of their problems. They are sinners before God. They need a Savior. And by embracing Christ as their ultimate treasure in this life, they've been born again. The Spirit of God has been placed in their lives. And the Spirit of God now lives within them. Then they are united for no other reason other than they can look at one another and say, Brother, sister, why? Because they have the same Father. Remember, Jesus said, Lest a man be born again, he will not see nor will he inherit the kingdom of God. So when we lack in our spirit of unity, when we are void of the ability and the desire to be unified, we must ask this question of ourselves. Have I been born again? Have I been placed in his family? 
Otherwise, I am an outsider simply looking in. You must be born again, Jesus said. And since He is the source of our unity, we must become skillful in opposing anything and anyone who seeks to disrupt our loyalty to Jesus. On some level, everyone in our sin has a little Jesus plus in their lives. Are you into Jesus plus pro-life causes? Jesus plus certain types of clothing? Jesus plus specific programs and ministries? Jesus plus social activism? Jesus plus this? Jesus plus that? These very pluses, listen, these very pluses can become the very things that destroy our unity, even if they're good things. When we take good things and we make them into God things, they become bad things. Paul addressed this with the Galatians. Look at Galatians chapter 1. He writes to them in relationship to the Judaizers, starting in verse 6 of Galatians chapter 1, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, Let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. We cannot assume that we have the gospel unless we keep it at the center. It is extremely important that the good news of the cross and the resurrection of Christ is preached and is demonstrated to be the very power of God unto salvation. Otherwise, we're left with ideas and we're left with stuff, but we don't have Christ. The church's greatest danger is not the anti-gospel outside the church. It is the multitude of false and counterfeit gospels inside the church. What makes the counterfeit gospel so dangerous is that those who hold to it, one, think they have the gospel, and two, they know how to talk about salvation in Christ. They can present the gospel, only they don't have the gospel at all. Because it's always the gospel plus something else. So we should expect that the most serious threat to the one true gospel is something that is also called the gospel, but is only pretty close. But to be pretty close is to not be there at all. So the most dangerous threat to Christian unity is the preaching of a different Christ, even if we still call him Jesus. Lastly, Paul lays out the priority. Verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. 
and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. You know, verses 15 and 16, I can imagine Paul is sort of walking around dictating what he was writing to his secretary, to Sosthenes. He's saying, I, I only baptized Crispus and Gaius. Oh yeah, I baptized also the household of Stephanus. You see, he was reciting this to one who was writing this down. And although an apostle, Paul was not omniscient. Therefore, he was not able to remember all that he had baptized. He was just a man. The power and the significance of what he was saying is that he had been given a divine appointment in apostleship. That's why his word carries infallible significance. But it does not rest to say that he is omniscient. There is only one who is omniscient. It is God alone. And so in verse 17, he goes on to say, the proclamation of truth comes prior to the introduction of this symbolic ritual called baptism. And don't get me wrong here. Paul is not saying baptism is not necessary or not something that he was concerned with. Obviously, he was because we just saw in the last two verses that he had baptized several within the church. And the very fact that he can't remember all those who he baptized leads us to believe that there were so many that he's baptized in his ministry that he couldn't figure out every single person. So baptism, Paul is saying, is a priority, but it is something that can be performed by any one of Paul's counterparts that is with him that has been commissioned to serve the church with him. He is simply noting his specific task as an apostle to proclaim the gospel. So first, the proclamation of truth. Then, the establishment of the parameters in which the truth is contained. And he says, I'm not proclaiming the truth with words of eloquent wisdom. Now, is Paul saying that the gospel should not be proclaimed masterfully? Is he saying that a preacher should not take hold of the beauty of language and use it for the benefit of good, well-established and beautiful proclamation? No, I don't think so, because Paul himself was a master of his language. If you read Acts 17 at the Areopagus, we have a great example of that. But in light of all of this, in light of great intelligence, in light of great oratorical abilities and excellence, what does he do? He simply preaches the gospel. And this is what Paul's getting at. He doesn't try to make out that the gospel may be accommodated by a specific climate or that it can be more or less than it is. He's running contrary here to the idea that the gospel may need to be packaged in a sort of skillful philosophy or that additional thought may need to be added to the gospel. Because should that be the case, it will no longer be the gospel at all. And this is where all of you and myself must be very astute listeners when the word of God is being proclaimed. 
it is very easy for a preacher to slip into proclaiming human wisdom and failing to proclaim the wisdom of God, thus failing to proclaim the gospel. In other words, we can package the gospel in a way that is incredibly beautiful and incredibly magnificent to the point of us not even wanting to cut the ribbon, not even wanting to tear the paper. And then when we finally do, we open it up and realize it's not necessarily the thing that we really wanted. And we realize that we actually like the packaging better than we did the gift inside. So I could be up here packaging something that sounds like the gospel in human wisdom and human eloquence in such a way that were you to get through all of that to the actual gospel, it would be foolishness to you. Because you focus on all the fluff, not on the main object. And some preachers are magnificent at packaging the cross, at packing away the cross. But when we do that, we are saying that the cross is less than magnificent. We are saying that the cross is less than satisfying. We are saying that the cross is less than beautiful on its own and therefore it needs to be prettied up and set to be something other than it actually is as to not be the offense that is to be that is to those who are perishing. But brothers and sisters, the cross of Christ doesn't need us to make it something other than what it is. It is glorious on its own. But when many talk about unity, this is the approach that they will seek. But this is not unity. It's compromise and it's gospellessness. Unity is not removing the offense that exists because of how God has designed the world and how He has proclaimed in His Word that certain things are true and to be believed and followed and announced and obeyed. We don't just say, well, those are offensive to some people. And we're being called here to unity. So we're going to play those offenses down because we want to be unified and we want to be happy and we want to be inviting to all. That's not unity. That's blasphemy. Unity for the church is looking to the cross and seeing the cross in all its brilliance and in all its beauty and in all its shame and embracing the cross and loving the cross and proclaiming that it is because of the cross that Christ died upon that we live and breathe and have hope beyond hope. Christian unity is the very thing that the world looks to and calls offensive and folly. Our unity cannot be in external causes. Our unity cannot be in aligning our personal preferences. Our unity cannot be in that we all dress the same way or drive the same cars or read the same books or do the same hobbies. If we're striving for unity in those areas, we will never achieve true unity because true unity only exists, only exists in the cross of Christ 
when we are fixed on who he is and what he has done and how he is working to reconcile his people and this world to himself for his glory and for the great eternal worship that awaits us. And so, in summary, Christ is not divided. He is one. Believers possess all things in him, not just the little distinctives of their favorite teachers. No teacher was crucified for you. Only Christ was. You were not baptized into a preacher's name. You were baptized into Christ's name. And true teachers of the gospel don't try to win converts or party members by preaching with self-enhancing eloquence. They die to themselves in preaching Christ crucified. And God is the one who produces all spiritual fruit and should give the glory, get all the glory for those results, not man. Brothers and sisters, let us all be united in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we pray with a great desire to be unified in the cross of Christ. We pray, Lord Jesus, with all of our hearts that you would unite us. That we would see the glory of the cross of Christ. And that we would be unified to know that it is Christ who has died for us. That Christ is not divided and that when we have Christ, we have all of Christ. Help us, O Lord, to not follow after the wisdom of men but to only seek to know and to trust and to love and to live in the wisdom of God, which looks like complete and utter folly to the world around us. Father, help us to embrace the radical, the absolutely radical life that the Scriptures call us to as fellow believers in Christ Jesus. Help us to be united as brothers and sisters in Christ that we would love one another, that we would love the church of the world, that we would give our lives for the glory of Christ. Help us, Father, to be one. Help us to be unified in spirit and in truth. We're grateful, Father, that you are the great unifier and that you bring all things to pass for your glory and for our great and abiding joy. In Jesus' name, amen.